Section 8 of The Wit of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robin Carno. The Wit of Women by Kate Sanborn. Chapter 7, Part 2. and a few pages from Miss Murphy, who's shown such rare power in her short character sketches. A Blacksmith in Love by Charles Egbert Craddock The pine knots flamed and glistened under the great wash kettle. A tree-toad was persistently calling for rain in the dry distance. The girl, gravely impassive, beat the clothes with the heavy paddle. Her mother shortly ceased to prod the white heaps in the boiling water, and presently took up the thread of her discourse. "'And Vander have got to be a mighty sudden man. I hear and tell, when I wore down to Maria's house, to the quiltin', as how in that sort of fight and scrimmage they had at the mill last month, he wore powerful ill-conducted. Nobody had thought of having much of a fight. Thar had been just a few licks passed atwixt the men thar. But the first finger as were laid on this boy, he just lit out and fit like a catamount. Right and left he lay about him with his fists, and he drawed his hunting knife on some of them. The men at the mill war in no wise pleased with him. "'Pears to me as Vander air a peaceable boy enough, if he ain't jawed at and air left be,' drawled Cynthia. Her mother was embarrassed for a moment. Then, with a look both sly and wise, she made an admission, a qualified admission. "'Wow! Women! If if they air young and tolerable, hard-headed yet, air likely to jaw some, anyhow. And a gal oughtn't to marry a man as have sought his heart on being left in peace. He is apt to be a mighty sour and disappointed critter. This sudden turn to the conversation invested all that had been said with new meaning and revealed a subtle diplomatic intention. The girl seemed deliberately to review it as she paused in her work. Then, with a rising flush, "'I ain't studying about marrying nobody,' she asserted staidly. "'I have laid off to live single.' Mrs. Ware had overshot the mark, but she retorted, gallantly reckless. That's what your Aunt Ma Viney used to declare for gospel sure when she wore a gal. And she've got ten children, and have buried two husbands. And if all they say are true, she's tolling in the third man now. She's a mighty spry, good-featured woman, and a first-rate manager. Your Aunt Ma Viney Aaron, both her husbands left her something, cows or wagons or land. And they were quiet men when they were alive, and stays where they are put now that they are dead. Not like old Parson Hoodenpile, 
with his wife here stumping round the house and preaching every night, though she is deep as a post. Ain't it been in glory twenty year, twenty year and better. Your Aunt Malvina had luck, so maybe tain't no killing complaint for a gal to get her talking like a fool about marrying and such. Leastwise, I ain't minded Tresora. She looked at her daughter with a gay grin, which, distorted by her toothless gums and the wreathing steam from the kettle, enhanced her witch-like aspect and was spuriously malevolent. She did not notice the stir of an approach through the brambly tangles of the heights above until it was close at hand. As she turned, she thought only of the mountain cattle and to see the red cow's picturesque head and crumpled horns thrust over the sassafras bushes, or to hear the brindle's clanking bell. It was certainly less expected to Cynthia when a young mountaineer, clad in brown jean trousers and a checked homespun shirt, emerged upon the rocky slope. He still wore his blacksmith's leather apron, and his powerful corded hammer-arm was bare beneath his tightly rolled sleeve. He was tall and heavily built. His sunburned face was square, with a strong lower jaw, and his features were accented by fine lines of charcoal, as if the whole were a clever sketch. His black eyes held fierce intimations. But there was a mobility of expression about them that suggested changing impulses, strong but fleeting. He was like his forge-fire, Though the heat might be intense for a time, it fluctuated with the breath of the bellows. Just now he was meekly quailing before the old woman, whom he evidently had not thought to find here. It was as apt an illustration as might be, perhaps, of the inferiority of strength to finesse. She seemed an inconsiderable adversary, as, haggard, lean, and prematurely aged, she swayed on her prodding-stick about the huge kettle. But she was as a veritable David to this big young Goliath, though she, too, flung hardly more than a pebble at him. Laws of me! she cried in shrill, toothless glee. If yar ain't Vander Price, what brung you down here long o' wins, Vander? She continued with simulated anxiety. Had that thar red heifer a arm leapt over the fence again and got into Pete's corn? Well, sir, if she ain't the headnest heifer. I ain't seen none of your heifer as I knows on, replied the young blacksmith with gruff, drawling deprecation. Then he tried to regain his natural manner. I came down here he remarked in an offhand way, to get a drink of water. He glanced furtively at the girl, then looked quickly away at the gallant red bird, still gaily parading among the leaves. The old woman grinned with delight. Now, if that ain't surprising, she declared, if we had known as Lost Creek were going dry over yonder and nigh the shop, so ye and Pete would have to come yar thirsting for water 
Wiggins would have brung something down yar to drink outen. Wiggins ain't got no gourd yar, have we, Cynthia? Thou it air the little gourd with the saft soap in it, said Cynthia, confused and blushing. Her mother broke into a high, loud laugh. <laughs> he ain't wantin' ter give Vander the soap gourd to drink outen, Cynthia. Leastwise, I ain't going to get it to Pete. For I suppose if you have to come a half a mile to get a drink, then there is surely Pete'll have to come too. Wow. Well, who would have believed as Lost Creek would go dry nigh the shop? And yet be scuttling along like that. Yarabouts. And she pointed with her bony finger at the swift flow of the water. He was forced to abandon his clumsy pretense of thirst. Lost Creek ain't gone dry no water, as I knows on, he admitted, mechanically rolling the sleeve of his hammer arm up and down as he talked. From Miss Wilson's Story of Anne, I give the pen portrait of the precise. Miss Lois Codfish balls for breakfast on Sunday morning, of course, said Miss Lois. And fried hasty pudding. On Wednesdays, a boiled dinner. Pies on Tuesdays and Saturdays. The pen stood in straight rows on her pincushion. Three times each week, every room in the house was swept, and the floors as well as the furniture dusted. Beans were baked in an iron pot on Saturday night, and sweet cake was made on Thursday. Winter or summer, through scarcity or plenty, Miss Lois never varied her established routine. Thereby setting an example, she said, to the idle and shiftless. And certainly she was a faithful guidepost, continually pointing out an industrious and systematic way which, however, to the end of time, no French-blooded, French-hearted person will ever travel, unless dragged by force. The villagers preferred their lake trout to Miss Lois's salt codfish, their tartines to her cornmeal puddings, and their eau de vie to her green tea. They loved their disorder and their comfort. Her bar soap and scrubbing brush were a horror to their eyes. They washed the household clothes two or three times a year. Was not that enough? Of what use the endless labor of this sharp-nosed woman, with glasses over her eyes, at the church house? Were not, perhaps, the glasses the consequence of such toil? And her figure of long leanness also? The element of real heroism, however, came into Miss Lois's life and her persistent effort to employ Indian servants. Through long years had she persisted, through long years would she continue to persist. A succession of Chippewa squaws broke, stole, and skirmished their way through her kitchen. With various degrees of success, generally in the end departing suddenly at night with whatever booty they could lay their hands on, 
It is but justice to add, however, that this was not much a rigid system of keys and excellent locks prevailing in the well-watched household. Miss Lois's conscience would not allow her to employ half-breeds, who were sometimes endurable servants. Duty required, she said, that she should have full-blooded natives, and she had them. She always began to teach them the alphabet within three days after their arrival, and the spectacle of a tearful, freshly caught Indian girl, very wretched in her calico dress and white apron, worn out with the ways of the kettles and the brasses, dejected over the fish-balls, and appalled by the pudding, standing confronted by a large alphabet on the well-scoured table, and Miss Lois by her side, with a pointer, was frequent and even regular in its occurrence. The only change had been in the personality of the learners. No one of them had ever gone through the letters. But Miss Lois was not discouraged. The Circus at Denby by Sarah Orne Jewett I cannot truthfully say that it was a good show. It was somewhat dreary, now that I think of it, quietly and without excitement. The creatures looked tired, and as if they had been on the road for a great many years. The animals were all old, and there was a shabby great elephant whose look of general discouragement went to my heart, for it seemed as if he were miserably conscious of a misspent life. He stood, dejected, and motionless at one side of the tent, and it was hard to believe that there was a spark of vitality left in him. A great number of the people had never seen an elephant before, and we heard a thin, little old man who stood near us say delightedly, There's the old creature, and no mistake, Aunt Liza, I wanted to see him most of anything. "'My sakes alive, ain't he big!' And Ann Liza, who was stout and sleepy-looking, droned out, "'Yes, there's considerable of him, "'but he looks as if he ain't got no animation.' Kate and I turned away and laughed, while Mrs. Q said, confidentially, as the couple moved away, she needn't be a reflectin' on the poor beast. That's Miss Seth Tanner. And there isn't a woman in Deephaven nor East Parish to be named the same day with her for laziness. I'm glad she didn't catch sight of me. She'd have talked about nothing for a fortnight. There was a picture of a huge snake in Deephaven, and I was just wondering where he could be. Or if there ever had been one when we heard a boy ask the same question of the man whose thankless task it was to stir up the lions with a stick to make them roar. The snake's dead, he answered good-naturedly. Didn't you have to dig an awful long grave for him? asked the boy. But the man said he reckoned they curled him up some, and smiled as he turned to his lions. That looked as if they needed a tonic. Everybody lingered longest before the monkeys. That seemed to be the only lively creatures in the whole collection. Coming out of the great tent was disagreeable enough, 
and we seemed to have chosen the worst time, for the crowd pushed fiercely, though I suppose nobody was in the least hurry, and we were all severely jammed, while from somewhere underneath came the wails of a deserted dog. We had not meant to see the sideshows, but when we came in sight of the picture of the Kentucky giantess, we noticed that Mrs. Q looked at it wistfully, and we immediately asked if she cared anything about going to see the wonder, whereupon she confessed that she never heard of such a thing as a woman's weighing six hundred and fifty pounds. So we all three went in. There were only two or three persons inside the tent, beside a little boy who played the hand organ. The Kentucky giantess sat in two chairs on a platform, and there was a large cage of monkeys just beyond, toward which Kate and I went at once. Why, she isn't more than two-thirds as big as the picture, said Mrs. Q in a regretful whisper. But I guess she's big enough. Doesn't she look discouraged, poor creature? Kate and I felt ashamed of ourselves for being there. No matter if she had consented to be carried round for a show, it must have been horrible to be stared at and joked about day after day. And we gravely looked at the monkeys, and in a few minutes turned to see if Mrs. Q were not ready to come away, when, to our surprise, we saw that she was talking to the giantess with great interest, and we went nearer. I thought your face looked natural the minute I set foot inside the door, said Mrs. Q, but you've altered some since I saw you, and I couldn't place you till I heard you speak. Why, you used to be spare. I am amazed, merrily. Where are your folks? I don't wonder you are surprised, said the giantess. I was a good ways from this when you knew me, wasn't I? But father, he ran through with every cent he had before he died. And he took to drink, and it killed him after a while. And then I begun to grow worse and worse, till I couldn't do nothing to earn a dollar. And everybody was a-coming to see me. Till at last I used to ask em ten cents apiece. And I scratched along somehow, till this man came round and heard of me. And he said he'd offer me my keep and good pay to go along with him. He had another giantess before me. But she had begun to fall away considerable, so he paid her off and let her go. This other giantess was an awful expense to him. She was such an eater. Now, I don't have no great of an appetite. This was said plaintively. And he's raised my pay since I've been with him because we did so well. Have you been in Kentucky long? asked Mrs. Q. I saw it on the picture outside. No, said the giantess. That was the picture the man bought cheap from another show that broke up last year. It says 650 pounds, but I don't weigh more than 400. I haven't been weighed for some time past. Between you and me, I don't weigh as much as that. But you mustn't mention it. 
for it would spoil my reputation and might hinder my getting another engagement. Then they shook hands in a way that meant a great deal, and when Kate and I said good afternoon, the giantess looked at us gratefully and said, I'm very much obliged to you for coming in, young ladies. Walken, Walken, the man was shouting as we came away. Walken and see the wonder of the world, ladies and gentlemen. The largest woman ever seen in America. The great Kentucky giantess. New York to Newport. A Trip of Trials by Louise Chandler Moulton. The Jane Mosley was a disappointment. Most Janes are. If they had called her Samuel, no doubt she would have behaved better. But they called her Jane. And the natural consequences of our mistakes cannot be averted from ourselves or others. A band was playing wild strains of welcome as we approached. Come and sail with us, it said. It is summer and the days are long. Care is of the land. Here the waves flow and the winds blow. And Captain smiles, and stewardess beguiles, and all is music, music, music. How the wild, exultant strains rose and fell, but everything rose and fell on that boat, as we found out afterward. Just here a spirit of justice falls on me, like the gentle dew from heaven, and forces me to admit that it rained like a young deluge that it had been raining for two days, and the bosom of the deep was heaving with responsive sympathy, as what bosom would not on which so many tears had been shed. Perhaps responsive sympathy was the secret of the Jane Mosley's behavior, but I would her heart had been less tender. Then, too, the passengers were few, and, of course, as we had to divide the roll and tumble between us, there was a great deal for each one. There was a pretty girl, and she had a sister who was not pretty. It seemed to me that even the sad sea waves were kinder to the pretty girl. Such is the influence of youth and beauty. There were various men, heavy swells, I should call some of them, only that that would be slang, but heavy swells were the order of the day. Then there was a benevolent old lady who believed in everything, in the music, and the Jane Mosley, and the long days, and the summer. There was another old lady of restless mind, who evidently believed in nothing, hoped for nothing, expected nothing, she tried all the lounges and all the corners, and found each one a separate disappointment. There was a fat, fair one, a friendly face, and beside her her grim guardian, a man so thin that you at once cast him for the part of starveling in this midsummer day's dream of delusion. We put out from shore, quite out of sight of shore, in short, and then the perfidious music ceased. To the people on land it had sung, Come and make merry with us. But from us, trying in vain to make merry, it withheld its deceitful inspiration. 
for the exceeding weight of sorrow that presently settled down upon us it had no balm when you are on a pleasure trip it is unpleasant to be miserable so i tried hard to shake off the mild melancholy that began to steal over me i said to myself i will not affront the great deep with my personal woes i am but a woman yet perhaps on this so great occasion magnanimity of soul will be possible even to me i will consider my neighbors and be wise at one end of the long saloon a banquet board was spread its hospitality was like the other attractions of the jane mosley a perfidious pageant nobody sought its soup or claimed its clams one or two sad-eyed young men made their way in that direction from time to time after their sea-legs perhaps from their gait when they came back i inferred they did not find them the human nature in the saloon became a weariness to me even the gentle gambols of the dog thaddeus a sportive and spotted pointer in whom i had been interested failed to soothe my perturbed spirits de quincey speaks somewhere of the awful solitariness of every human soul no wonder then that i should be solitary among the festive few on board the jane mosley no wonder i felt myself darkly deeply desperately blue i thought i would go on deck i clung to my companion with an ardor which would have been flattering had it been voluntary my faltering steps were guided to a seat just within the guards i sat there thinking that i had never nursed a dear gazelle so i could not be quite sure whether it would have died or not but i thought it would i mused on the changing fortunes of this unsteady world and the ingratitude of man i thought it would be easier going to the promised land if jordan did not roll between rolling had long ceased to be a pleasant figure of speech with me how frail are all things here below how false and yet how fair my mind is naturally picturesque in the midst of my sadness the force of nature compelled me to grope after an illustration i could only think that my own foothold was frail that the jane mosley was false that the pretty girl was fair a dizziness of brain resulted from this rhetorical effort i silently confided my sorrows to the sympathizing bosom of the sea i was soothed by the kindred melancholy of the sad sea waves if the size of the waves were remarkable other sighs abounded also and other things waved many of them true to my purpose of studying my fellow-beings i learned wisdom by observation i surveyed the pretty girl and her sister who had by that time come on deck they were surrounded by a group of audacious male creatures who surrounded most on the side where the pretty girl sat she did not look feeble she was like the red red rose it was a conundrum to me why so much 
greater anxiety should be bestowed upon her health than upon her sister's. It needed some moral reflection to make it out, but I concluded that pretty girls were, by some law of nature, more subject to seasickness than plain ones. Therefore, all these careful cares were quite in order. I saw the two old ladies, the benevolent one who had believed so implicitly in all things, but over whose benign visage doubt had now begun to settle like a cloud, and the other who had hoped nothing from the first, and therefore over whom no disappointment could prevail. And, seeing, I mildly wondered whether, indeed, twere better to have loved and lost, or never to have loved at all. My thoughts grew solemn. The green shores beyond the swelling flood seemed farther off than ever. The Jane Mosley had promised to land us at Newport Pier at seven o'clock. It was already half-past seven. Oh, perfidious Jane! Darkness had settled upon the face of the deep. We went inside. The sad-eyed young men had evidently been hunting for their sea-legs again in the neighborhood of the banqueting table, where nobody banqueted. Failing to find the secret of correct locomotion, they had laid themselves down to sleep. But in that sleep, at sea, what dreams did come? And how noisy they were! The dog Thaddeus walked by dejectedly, sniffing at the ghost of some half-forgotten joy. At last there rose a cry. Newport! The sleepers started to their feet. I started to mine, but I discreetly and quietly sat down again. Was it Newport at last? Not at all. The harbor lights were gleaming from afar, and the cry was of a bandmaster shouting to his emissaries. Arousing fiddle and flute and bassoon, to their deceitful duty. They had played us out of port. They would play us in again. They had promised us that all should go merry as a marriage bell, and I would not be understood to complain, but it had been a sad occasion. Now the deceitful strains rose and fell again upon the salt sea wind. The many lights glowed and twinkled from near shore. We are all at play. Come and play with us, screamed the soft waltz music. It is summer, and the days are long, and trouble is not, and care is banished. If the waves sigh, it is with bliss. Our voyage is ended. It is sad that you did not sail with us, but we will invite you again tomorrow, and the band shall play and the crowd be gay, and airs beguile, and blue skies smile, and all shall be music, music, music. But I have sailed with you on a summer day, bland master of a faithless band, and I know how soon your pipes are dumb. I know the tricks and manners of the clouds and the wind, and the swelling sea and Jane Mosley. 
the perfidious. I must, after all, have strong local attachments, for when at last the time came to land, I left the ship with lingering reluctance. My feet seemed fastened to the deck, where I had made my brief home on the much-rolling deep. I had grown used to pain and resigned to fate. I walked the plank unsteadily. I stood on shore amid the rain and the mist. A hackman preyed upon me. I was put into an ancient ark and trundled on through the queer, irresolute, contradictory old streets beside the lovely bay, all aglow with the lighted yachts, as a southern swamp is with fireflies. A torchlight procession met and escorted me. To this hour I am at a loss to know whether this attention was a delicate tribute on the part of the city of Newport to a distinguished guest, or a parting attention from the company who sailed the Jane Mosley, and advertise in the Tribune, a final subterfuge, to persuade a tortured passenger, by means of this transitory glory, that the sail upon a summer sea had been a pleasure trip. Letter to New York Tribune End of section 8 Recording by Robin Carnot